Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And my name is Christian Sager. Robert, I'm, I'm ready for a vacation. Yeah. It's the middle of summer. It is. I was just reading that this is not our imagination, that apparently the statistics are saying that like this is one of the hottest years in a long time. This summer is brutal. I want to go to Svalbard. <laughs> That's where I want my vacation. So, so not the not the beaches of Florida, not the the mountains of uh, of of North Georgia, but no Svalbard. Yeah, I'm definitely not a beach person. Uh, my ideal vacation spot is I'd like to spend summers in Svalbard and then winters in Tristan da Cunha. Do you know that island? It I is, don't think I do. It's this small island uh, in the Atlantic Ocean, kind of smack between. Uh, North America and Europe. Huh. And uh, I think it might, it might technically have originally been like a Portuguese colony, but it's something like, there's something like a hundred people live there or something like that, but it's its own nation. Uh, it's, it, oh, everything about it sounds great. Nobody goes there. <laughs> so that's where I want to spend my winter. You like isolation. You want splendid isolation. Yeah. I'm weird though. Cause I like isolation, but then I also usually live in big metropolitan areas. So mm-hmm. I, it's, it's one or the other. It's not in the middle. Like suburbs are definitely not for me, but like I could be in the middle of nowhere, like Svalbard, uh, just surrounded by ice and polar bears. Or smack in the middle of New York City. Those are like the places I'm the happiest. Well, it just reminds me of the classic uh, Warren Zevon song, Splendid Isolation, <laughs> where he's, it, it, which is a really intelligently written uh, track about this, this yearning for isolation and then the dangers of uh, indulging that desire. Oh, uh, yeah. Too much. Yeah. Uh, but there's, there are lyrics about like wanting to live alone in the desert and be like George O'Keefe or, or live on the Upper East Side and never go down in the streets. So, right. Yeah. It's the, there's a certain kind of isolation that you, you can find in the crowded, um, metropolitan areas that in, in a way is akin to, to desert isolation. It is. Yeah. There's something nice about it. Um, but I became really attracted to Svalbard after I watched this TV show called Fortitude, mm-hmm. which I, I believe was produced by either the BBC or maybe it was Sky, uh, the, one of those television networks out of Britain. And uh, there's two seasons of it, and it's on Amazon now. And so my wife and I just binged watched the whole thing. And it's all set on Svalbard in a small town. Uh, it's a murder mystery. And man, I recommend it to listeners of our show. It tackles the weirdness of real science within this murder mystery. And without spoiling anything, it, it touches on so many things that we've covered on this show. Like they get into stuff like shamanism, psychedelics, human experimentation, parasites. There's just a lot of interesting stuff there. And so I was like, Svalbard is fascinating. Mm-hmm. So what do I do? I sit down and I Google Svalbard and you know what comes up right away? A blog post that you wrote <laughs> in 2011 uh, about Svalbard. Oh yeah, yeah, so, yeah. I I wrote a, a piece about uh, like buried uh, secrets beneath Svalbard uh, because I, th- I think I was writing. I, I wrote several pieces for How Stuff Works uh, at the time. I think about it. So I'm glad you you brought up Svalbard as something to cover because it's one of those topics where. I kind of forget sometimes that it's it's such a cool topic because yeah. I, I wrote about it in the past and I not that I you know contain all knowledge of Svalbard but <laughs> you know I already I already hit some of the high points and I I, I have to to revisit it. Yeah, know? yeah, it's worth revisiting too and it, from the research that we did for today's episode what's really fascinating is how much it's changing too, right? Yeah. And and there's a lot of scientific research going on there specifically because of those changes because I think people, some people look at Svalbard as like a canary in a coal mine. No pun intended because there's literally coal mines all over this place. Mm-hmm. But that if stuff starts going wrong there ecologically, it might be a sign that things are going to change in the rest of the world. Now, before we, we push on and, and get into Svalbard hardcore, uh, I have two questions to ask about fortitude. First of all, yeah. is, is it supernatural in nature? Is there some sort of a speculative element? That's the thing is you don't know. Okay. Like, I've seen b- both seasons and I don't want to – you watch the first four or five episodes and there's no uh, inclination that you're watching a supernatural mystery. You think it's just like a murder mystery in this remote place. But then things start to get so bizarre that you have to ask yourself, is this supernatural or is there something 
they they do come up with kind of quasi scientific explanations for the things, but you're it's left up to you, the audience, to decide. Okay, cool. Well, that sounds good. Now, and then my my second question. Season two, yeah, does star Dennis Quaid, correct? Oh yeah, yeah. They bring Dennis Quaid in. Uh, he plays a fisherman who's apparently he's an American fisherman that's apparently lived on the island his whole life. He's married to uh, Catelyn Stark from Game of Thrones. Ah, uh, and uh, yeah, he's great in it. He's huh. great. Uh, he he's he, because the first season you're really following like the this murder investigation. Stanley Tucci is the American in that uh, season, and then Dennis Quaid apparently was there the whole time. We just <laughs> never saw him in season one, uh-huh. and they like kind of I- introduce him as like a major player in season two. Well, this is cool because uh, we were we were chatting a little bit about this o- offline, but um, Dennis Quaid, I think we we tend to sort of see him as just your. Your average vanilla leading man type of guy. And certainly he's done plenty of motion pictures that kind of back that up. Yeah. But he also has this off, often forgotten, uh, sci-fi pedigree, you know? Yes, absolutely. One of the first movies I ever saw him in, Jaws 3. That's right. He was in Jaws 3. Yeah. Now, I can't remember. Is Jaws, what, what's the, 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 the plot in that? Was that the one where like Jaws gets in the water system and it's, uh, Jaws, Jaws invades SeaWorld is that, is the plan. (laughs) The plot of that movie, yeah. Uh, Dennis Quaid is like, I, I believe he plays like the, the head engineer at this quote unquote SeaWorld place that mm-hmm. Louis Gossett Jr. runs. Oh, uh, well, he's in that too. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And then, uh, his wife or maybe girlfriend, she's like a dolphin trainer or a marine biologist or something like that. And yeah, Jaws gets into SeaWorld and starts eating all the animals and all the people swimming around and stuff. <laughs> and it's in 3D. Oh yeah, because Jaws 3D. 3D. Yep. Well, yeah, uh, he was, I guess one of the first big films that he was in, and this ties into the science, he was in 1983's The Right Stuff, as yeah. astronaut uh, Gordon Cooper. And then he went on to be in just basically back to back three, like really fun sci-fi properties. Dreamscape. I never saw Dreamscape. Oh, it's, it's pretty great. Yeah. Yeah, like a lot of like dream warrior shenanigans. Oh, and cool. You have the guy from the Warriors. The Warriors come out and play. Oh, uh, yeah? He, play, he turns into a snake man in the oh, dreams. Oh, okay. And then you have Enemy Mine. Yeah. Which uh, is also a Luke tremendous film. Yeah, yeah, Gossip Jr. plays the the alien that uh, Quaid crash lands on this, this uh, world with. It's, yeah. It's one of my one of my favorite sci fi. That's films. a great movie, yeah. And then of course, Inner Space. That probably I would imagine Dennis Quaid's biggest movie, or at least like it's pretty what big. most people remember him from. Yeah, no pun intended. Biggest movie, but <laughs> but the, I remember Inner Space fondly because I want to say at Universal Studios they had like an Inner Space ride oh, where you they? would like yeah you would go in and you would get inside like a a, a room with like not. Uh, what do you call it when like the seats all move and everything together? Like you're on a journey together. Yeah, I'm sure there's an industry term for that. And but there's yeah. screens all over the room as if you're in like this vessel and you've been shrunken down and injected into Martin Short's body. <laughs> yeah, that one, that was such a, a fun film. I remember I made so many, uh, when I was a kid, I made so many Lego submarines to go inside Martin Short's body. <laughs> you know, poor Martin Short's body. <laughs> I should have mailed them to him and said, "Martin Short, can you please swallow the submarine? Right. I made it for you." Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, and the funny thing is about with Fortitude is I haven't really thought of Dennis Quaid since the eighties because <laughs> he's mostly in things that are off my radar. Right? Like the the only two things I can remember recently wasn't he in that movie Frequency? He was where he's yeah. like a ghost talking to his daughter through time and space through an old radio or something. Yeah, I didn't see that one, but he was in it. Which they've now turned into a TV show, I think. Huh. Uh, it, so I guess it was successful. I don't know. Yeah. But then uh, there's this movie called, I think it's called A Dog's Purpose. And it's all about like <sighs> Dennis Quaid when he's a little kid has a dog that he loves and it's like the best dog ever. And that dog dies. And then he grows up and he becomes Dennis Quaid and gets another dog, but it turns out that his dog has been resurrected over and over again for the last 50 some odd years and is now resurrected in this new dog's body. And like Dennis Quaid becomes aware of re- reincarnation through dogs. Wow. So it's like the doggy llama. I guess yeah. Like the- <laughs> something like that. At least that's what the trailer looks like. Looks real bad, but, uh, Fortitude, he's fantastic. Huh. It, it made, like, I had forgotten how great he was. And then you watch Fortitude and man, yeah, I can't recommend that show enough. Huh. Yeah, I'll have to check that out. I, I really enjoyed uh, Quaid in 2009's Pandorum. I know that's a lot oh, of people I don't know that, that either. Oh, it's a, it was a, like a German co-produced, 
science fiction horror film. Okay. With space crazies in it and. Really? And like, uh, mutants on a, on a colony barge to another world. So he's just one of these guys who kind of just jumps around all over the place and just does, does everything. I think so, but yeah. I, I, I was looking for more sci-fi and like, science-oriented stuff on his uh, resume, and yeah. I didn't see a lot between those three earlier films we mentioned and Pandorum and Frequency. So yeah. I wonder if he, w- he was afraid of being typecast as being like Could the be. sci-fi leading man, but... Huh. Yeah, well, now, I mean, now he's like, he's coming back as like that, you know, I, I would assume he's in his late 50s, early 60s, and he's got that, like, grizzled look to him, you know, and in Fortitude, it's like his skin's made of leather. He's like the perfect <laughs> guy to be a fisherman on this frozen island. So maybe we should get into Svalbard. Let's do it. So our our producer, Alex, asked us before we came into the studio today, what's this about? We told him and he he looked at us quizzically, right? Like he didn't know what the word was we were even saying when we said Svalbard. And most people don't. Like it's it's this place that's so remote that most people don't even know it exists. In fact, it's not even – it doesn't even belong to a, a nation really. Yeah. Um. But – Let's give some brief background on it. And then we're going to go through and we're going to extrapolate some of the really cool, bizarre science facts surrounding this archipelago. Okay, so this is the background from the official I, – I, I went straight to the CIA for this. Okay. The CIA's World Fact Book from 2016. So it's, you know, meticulous research. Uh, they say that – Svalbard was first discovered by Norwegians in the 12th century and that the islands there served as an international whaling base during the 17th and 18th centuries. Norway's sovereignty, though, was recognized in 1920, so five years later it officially took over the territory of Svalbard, um, which I believe used to be referred to as Spitsbergen. Uh, uh-huh. so, so Svalbard, Norway sort of runs it, and we're not really going to talk a lot about like the history and the and the politics of it today. But from what I understand, Norway runs it. There's a governor that's appointed by Norway. Norway funds a lot of the stuff that's on the island, but it has its own government. It has its own economy and everything. In the 20th century, though, coal mining started because there was a lot of, of coal resources available on Svalbard. So today, Norway and Russia, they have uh, sort of joint custody over <laughs> over this land. Uh, there's various companies that are still functioning from those nations that are mining companies, essentially. Uh, and travel between the settlements is usually accomplished by snowmobiles, aircraft, and boats. So to give you an idea, it's actually a pretty big place. Between all of the islands, its total area is 62,045 square kilometers. And as you would imagine, its climate is Arctic. It's tempered by a warm North Atlantic current, though. So it does have has cool summers. The winters are cold. The North Atlantic current flows along the west and north coasts of Spitsbergen, or now Svalbard, and it keeps the water open and, and navigable for most of the year. Although my understanding is, is in the winter, the only way you can get to and from the mainland is via plane. I don't know that boats are all that reliable during the really heavy, you know, winter seasons. Now, Svalbard itself is actually 650 miles or 1,050 kilometers from the North Pole. This means it's the northernmost year-round human settlement on the planet. Uh, its population is around 2,200. That's, like, right around, like, my peak. Like, right <laughs> around where, like, I'd be comfortable being around that many people. And you're not even really – I mean, you're spreading out 2,200 people over the 62,000 square miles, you know. Well, they're not evenly distributed. Right. They have one person for every 1,000 square miles. <laughs> that, would, that, would, that would be disastrous. But, yeah. Uh. <laughs> um, but recently, Svalbard tried to move its economy toward tourism and scientific research and away from the coal mining that supported the economy in the early 20th century. So the, the basic idea is that they, they want – and apparently this is a thing now, like Svalbard tourism. In fact, like I found this website called Dark Tourism and it Dark was like tourism. all about touring places like this. Huh. Um, and it sounds like – I'm very interested in this actually. It sounds like you can fly into Svalbard from Norway. Uh, I think it's like a three-hour flight. Longyearbyen, I believe, is like the major town that uh, you visit. It's got a couple – hotels there Mm -hmm. there's like a few museums on the island and uh, you can visit these like uh, ghost towns that are like abandoned russian mining towns yeah yeah. Yeah, but um 
One thing that's that's in Fortitude and pretty heavily mentioned in the uh, first and second seasons that is true about Svalbard is danger of being eaten by polar bears pretty much everywhere you go except for this long urban place. Uh, so most people carry firearms with them whenever they go anywhere outside of that town's limits because the polar bears, well, you know, they're hungry, so they'll pounce on you. Yeah, I think this is one of the wonderful details about Svalbard when you start, you, you look at it and you realize this is a, an unforgiving, uh, frigid wilderness for yeah. the most part with polar bears roaming around, um, a doomsday arc. Um, yeah, which the, we will get into. We'll get to. Yeah. Um, and then abandoned mining towns, abandoned mines, um, glaciers, which will be uh, hitting next. I mean, it's just, just a, a fascinating place, especially. And then when you look at the human activity that is drawn there, it's kind of a, it, at times it kind of looks like a microcosm of, of human interests in the natural world. Yeah. Like, what are you yeah. there for? Oh, well, we're here to look at it, to exploit it, to right. study it, and to save it. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Like, we started off in the early 20th century exploiting it, whether it was the, the natural resources like coal or the animals that were there. Uh, and now we're turning around and trying to make it something that's beautiful to look at and that we can, like I said, it's this canary in a coal mine that we can study and, and, and save that and hopefully, you know, save the earth by looking at Svalbard. We're going to talk about some examples related to possible climate change here. All right. Well, let's, let's talk a little bit about the glaciers of Svalbard. Yeah. Uh, and it's, this will hopefully, you know, if you don't know a lot about glaciers, maybe this will serve as a, an introduction to them. I learned a thing doing this research that there is a job called a glaciologist. Yeah. People who just study glaciers and apparently many of them live in Svalbard. Yeah. I mean, glaciers cover 60% of uh, Svalbard. And it's, I feel like glaciers are one of these areas where it's easy to just dismiss them as just sort of uh, vestiges of a long departed ice age. You mm. know, just think of, oh, it's just, just ice sitting around and falling into the sea. Right. Yeah. In fact, the only time we really hear about glaciers, like in the news, is when big parts of them fall into the sea. Like, what was it, last week? Wasn't there yeah. like a huge uh, Antarctic glacier that ice broke shelf, off? Yeah. 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 So, you know, we, we tend to only pay attention when stuff like that happens, when it's really, uh, when it's when it's you know really uh, headline worthy, but uh, yeah, glaciers are not timeless remnants. They're rather complex structures, and they are given to uh, cyclical and progressive change. So these titans advance to the sea by as much as ninety eight feet or thirty meters each year. Wow! Winter births uh, new glacial ice, and each spring uh, these uh, giants bleed fresh water from their uh, crystalline hearts. Yeah, yeah, that is a great way to describe it, uh, and. I'll get into this uh, in a couple minutes, but the glaciers there, like your metaphor of them bleeding is Mm -hmm. actually pretty accurate because there's different types of ice within them and they melt at different consistencies based on pressure, not on temperature. Yeah, and different chambers and uh, yeah, they they, they really kind of have their own anatomy. And this is this is how it, how it works. Just as moving water erodes limestone to form hidden tunnels. If you've ever gone to on a tour of a cave or a cavern, yeah, you, this has been related to you. Uh, well, the same thing happens with uh, glacial drainage. They forge these complex cave systems. The meltwater uh, gouges these uh, uh, coiling tunnels through the ice, and far below, it flows along the the rocky uh, uh, glacier bed to form subglacial conduits. And here. You, uh, if, if conditions are just right, adventurous explorers can traverse floors of naked stone. Uh, all the while, you have the uh, uh, the, the lights uh, gleaming against these uh, these this ice architecture overhead. I'll try to include a, an image of this at the landing page for this episode at stufftoblowyourmind.com because it's 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 even more beautiful than whatever you're picturing. You know, the closest thing I think we have to that anywhere near us, and you're probably more familiar with it than I am since you're from Tennessee. Is uh, Rock City and Lookout Mountain just outside of uh, Chattanooga? Have you been there? Oh, Sea Rock City, yeah, uh, yeah. And have you gone inside Lookout Mountain before? Um, let's see. Well, uh, are you talking about you're talking about Rock City? Um, the, yeah, like on top of Lookout yeah. Mountain, there's that like little. I don't know. What, how would you describe it? I would describe it as a Tennessean Wagner themed. <laughs> um, 
outdoorsy uh it's like this weird uh, uh, fake attraction. village for dwarves like, yeah, like yeah. or fairies or something you go like through that? little caves you go across uh, suspension bridges and then occasionally there are dwarves and there is an actual wagner music playing over the speakers <laughs> yeah and you can take an elevator inside this mountain and uh climb around inside it very much like what you're talking about except for it's not a glacier it's an actual mountain well um, there's imagine, a waterfall inside well imagine you're in a cave except only you have cave beneath you yeah. and then ice above you. Right. Yeah. How how much scarier is that? Because I went into Lookout Mountain and it was like it's beautiful, but it's also the whole time you're in there, you're like, what if anything goes wrong? Like yeah. I'm, I'm dead. Uh, and in the glaciers, I imagine that's even stronger of a, of a feeling. Yeah. Also, Lookout Mountain, um, fun fact – Home to Autobot City in the 1980s Transformers movie. Really? Mm-hmm. Like, what was Autobot City? Did they live there? The, the Autobots? It was like, yeah, it was like a, a transforming city. It was basically where Chattanooga is. And yeah. they, I uh, had no idea. Yeah, they lived there. Yeah. There's a whole scene at the beginning where they're like, uh, looking at the sky from Lookout Mountain. Crazy. Yeah. Huh. All right. So these, uh, these ice caves, these, and these, uh, these tunnels beneath the glacier, uh, each year researchers from the university center in Svalbard, they, they descend into these, uh, these glacial caves, uh, and they map out the tunnels and also you know, study how, uh, glacial, um, hydrological systems work. Uh, but there is a, a sense of, of urgency in a lot of their work because while, uh, you know, stone cave uh, tends to outlive any human spelunkers. Uh, the meltwater, the airflow, glacial surges uh, after the the ice formations, this changes everything. Yeah. So it, it's not one of these things where you're like, all right, we'll just come back next year and finish this work. It, the, the the entire system may have may be different. Right. And of course, that's even when you factor in climate change on top of that, uh, it just adds to the fragility of these environments. So this is where these glaciers get weird, though, because that – they're not like, quote, normal glaciers. <laughs> you know, it's not like we encounter a ton of glaciers in our lifetime. But weirdly, the glaciers on Svalbard actually behave differently than the others worldwide. They advance in some distance for a couple years. Then they'll actually retreat. Like, it's like they they go forward and it seems like they then move backward. They remain quiet for 50 to 100 years, and then they'll start advancing again. So scientists have started studying this closely because they're thinking, well, this could affect sea levels. We need to understand this phenomenon. So these glaciers are called surging glaciers, and sometimes they're referred to as pulsating glaciers. I like that better, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna call them pulsating glaciers today. It, it, it brings, it's, it's such a, a, a wonderful, um, mental image that comes yeah. to mind because again, we tend to think of glaciers as just dead ice from a, a primal age just sitting around. Yeah. And, but, but there is a, there's a, a, there's a dynamic nature here. Oh, totally. They're their own, like, constantly changing ecosystem. Uh, so one in five of the glaciers on Svalbard acts this way. And globally, to give you an idea, only one in a hundred act this way with the retreating and the advancing. Some glaciologists even claim that nine out of ten glaciers on Svalbard pulsate. But this isn't actually proven yet. By contrast, there's no pulsating glaciers in nearby Norway. Only a few in Alaska and Iceland have been found to behave the same way, as well as some in Greenland and in the Antarctic. But Svalbard seems to be like the place to study these pulsating glaciers. Now, I read an interesting explanation by French researcher Heidi Silvestre. I believe that's how you pronounce her last name. Uh, This is her her theory for what's going on with these glaciers, and it sounds uh, plausible. So because they have massive weight, glacier masses flow slowly toward the ocean, right? This This is what we know about them. Most only move a few meters on a summer day. And our classic idea of a glacier is what's referred to as a calving glacier, where the front ends into the sea and then ice detaches from it. These glaciers are currently receding faster than normal, and they continually lose more ice. So this is why we're paying more attention to it. Uh, a pulsating glacier, though, will actually move faster than this. It moves 20 meters a day, for example. 
but they're unable to move fast enough to dispose of excess snow that is exerted on them from the ice caps. So while they're sliding faster, their volume actually remains the same. So it's not that they're actually moving forward and then retreating backward. It's that their their volume is staying the same, and it seems like that. So this is where these two different types of ice I was referring to come into play. You've got cold ice where the temperature is constantly below the melting point, and this moves slowly. And then there's temperate ice that is closer to the melting point. And what will happen is water forms underneath this ice and allows it to slide faster. So when a pulsating glacier becomes thicker because of this snow melt, the theory is that the pressure inside the ice is actually increasing. And that results in an increase in temperature. So the bottom ice starts to melt, and then the whole thing starts sliding faster. It all comes down to this increased pressure atop these glaciers. But when this meltwater drains off, the friction increases again, and the glacier comes to a halt. So we're, we're essentially seeing like this this shift in, in densities of matter, right? Uh, and these glaciers can be pretty dangerous because they, their speed increases. You actually shouldn't walk on them. And most researchers try not to when they're at this stage where the meltwater is underneath them. It's unfortunate though because researchers feel like they would be able to understand them better during the advancement stage than the, the halting stage. Still though, the melting is super significant. There's a loss of 4.5 million tons of meltwater per hour in the summer months. So we're talking about a, a lot of water there. Like, I think people kind of casually talk about glaciers melting when they're referring to climate change. When you hear a number like that, that's massive. Oh, yeah. Now, you know, another thing about uh, uh, about glaciers and just generally the, the ice and the, the frigid nature of Svalbard, you know, we often think that environments like this are are pretty, you know, barren of life. You yeah. Know, you have, sure, you have polar bears and birds and, and whatnot, but uh, people often overlook the, um, the, the, the microbial life. Oh, yeah. Found in these yeah. Places. There was a, an, there was an interesting research project, uh, in 2005. It was called the Arctic Mars Analog Svalbard Expedition, or a MACE. And, uh, their purpose was, as you might guess from the title, was to uh, essentially test out various life-seeking technologies that we might use on Mars, uh, oh. here on Earth. You know, so you pick a, uh, you know, a, a sufficiently, uh, you know, seemingly lifeless environment and then look for its, uh, its, uh, microbial life. Mm -hmm. And, uh, they, they made some uh, pretty startling discoveries, including microbial life within the blue ice vents of the million year old, uh, Seref gel volcano. Okay. So they, the researchers found both, uh, microbiota fossils and living communities. Uh, and this painted a picture of, of life's ancient, uh, colonization of this once, uh, of these once thermal heated cracks. So as the world cooled, these hardy organisms adapted to survive extreme cold and thrive on ice suspended mineral deposits. Okay. So, okay. Yeah. I'm getting a pretty clear picture here that like, Again, like we were saying, like it's its own ecosystem. There's mm -hmm. all this stuff going on underneath the ice. Now, much of the soil in Svalbard remains at or below the freezing point year-round. Uh, a thin, active area may warm to life during the spring, but the frozen permafrost uh, tends to remain frigid underneath. Now, research is still catching up with the secrets of life in that permafrost, but uh, recent findings reveal that it contains uh, microbial biomass comparable to temperate soil ecosystems. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, that that comparison to Lookout Mountain is probably nowhere near accurate, but when you're thinking about it, like outside of it being ice versus stone, mm -hmm. there's as much life probably moving around within these two things. Yeah. And I mean, the, the point about, um, temperate, uh, soil ecosystems, I think is important. Uh, I, I know on the show we've talked before about, uh, the idea of like taking Earth's ecosystem into space, taking it to another world and about how that would inherently involve bringing dirt with you. Mm. So the, the old, uh, vampire myth where the vampire has to bring, uh, bring their dirt with them in their, 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 their grave dirt with them so they can, uh, you know, take up in a new location. Yeah. It's kind of the same way with humans in general. Like if, 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 if we want earth life to succeed somewhere else, we have to bring our dirt because there is so much life in it. There's so much, uh, uh, th that, uh, 
that serves as the bedrock for uh, for for life itself. And that's heavily related to the seed vault that we're going to talk about later in this episode. But you know what? I'm going to jump ahead in the notes because I just have one small thing I want to bring up here that I think is related to what you're talking about here. So there's this rumor, and it's perpetuated by that show Fortitude, that it's illegal to die in Svalbard. Huh. Uh, it's not real. That's a myth. <laughs> but – the the idea is that people think, oh, well, because the permafrost, the ground is so hard all the time, you can't dig graves in it. Mm-hmm. So the, the, this this myth came about, you know, that, that you couldn't be buried there. Uh, there are graveyards on the, on some of the islands, but the governor's office clarified this in 2013, and they said the reason why is it's not illegal, but the major town of Longyearbyen is not a, quote, cradle-to-grave community is how they referred to yeah. it um, because they don't have the means to care for the elderly. Huh. You know, there's, it's it's such a limited uh, resource area that, you know, when you become a senior citizen, it's not like the people who are working there, whether they're researchers or, or doing tourism or, you know, in mining towns, they also have enough of a population to take care of, like, a senior living facility. Well, they have all these polar bears. I mean, I don't... Gotta train these polar bears, and yeah, things could really, really look up for Svalbard. Yeah, but I mean, in in terms of like, uh, you know, end of life care. Oh, you mean just like having them eat people? Yeah, I mean, it's one option. I'm not saying do it. I'm just saying (laughs) that, uh, you know, one one might might think there might be a solution there that benefits both. you know, the elderly of Svalbard and polar bears. It's, uh, what you're talking about here reminds me of that, um, do you ever read the Northern Lights trilogy, that, uh, Pullman stuff? They, they made a I movie about it a couple years ago. Yeah. yeah. One, uh, one of the talking polar bears in it at, at one point eats one of his friends when he dies mm-hmm. to take his essence into himself. Yeah. Uh, there's actually, there's been a polar bear cannibalism observed on Svalbard, uh, I believe, I remember from, uh, from research. But, uh, I guess I ended up going – I know this is kind of a grisly uh, tangent, but I guess I thought about it because it, it makes me think about burial customs in Tibet right. where you have limited burial space for you know obvious reasons. Mm-hmm. And so you have this long tradition of sky burial, of yeah. exposure burial, letting uh, the the animals, in this case the, the vultures um, of the natural uh, world, uh, consuming uh, flesh. Yeah. So it seems like that would work with polar bears as well, but – it's it's hard to really kickstart a tradition like that. I would be okay with it. You know what? Like, let it be heard here and now across the airwaves of this podcast. If I die and I, I'm in Svalbard, I don't want to make it too much of a burden on my loved ones. But if I'm <laughs> in Svalbard, I'm perfectly okay with my body being left out on the ice for polar bears to munch on. That seems like a great way to contribute to the yeah, ecosystem. Yeah, you know, away from the uh, the rest of the humans. It's a true yeah. green burial. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, actually, what you were just mentioning with the sky burial reminds me of something I've been meaning to mention to you, and I might as well recommend it to the audience while we're here. Um, Warren Ellis and Phil Hester have this new comic book called Shipwreck, uh-huh. and one of the issues is basically just a sky burial. Like you're watching a sky burial take place in this huh. issue while these characters are having a conversation with one another. So it really highlights uh, – I mean they talk about the actual sky burial act itself, but then you're you're – not witnessing it because it's a comic book, but it's making you think about it in a way that like when we just do an episode on on sky burials, we can say, yeah, they put your body out and a bunch of vultures rip you to shreds, right? But like this is showing the whole thing happening while these two guys are just sitting there having a conversation. It's pretty interesting. Yeah, there's a, like a ritual processing of the body that takes place. As yeah. Well. I, I feel like we've, we've talked about sky burial on the show. I know that you and I have talked about Tibetan uh, culture and art and traditions. Yeah, I think you did something on it before I joined the show okay. or maybe there was a video that one of us did it's been a while this yeah. is what happens everybody like we do so much stuff that we forget sometimes I mean, like I, where I, we did but we know that we've learned these things somewhere yeah i definitely wrote an article on sky burial for how stuff works but i do not remember uh any exactly what the podcast scenario was yeah so. well we'll take a peek back at the archives and if we haven't done it maybe that's something we need to visit All right, well, let's take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll get more into the human history of Svalbard. All right, we're back. Now, you touched uh, on this a little bit already, but marauding Vikings uh, knew the islands of Svalbard as uh, Svalbaro 
in the 12th century, though they had little use for it. Uh, then when Dutch explorer uh, Wilhelm uh, Barents rediscovered the islands in 1596, whalers followed in his wake. So soon the shores were crawling with seamen from across Europe, all bundled up uh, against the chill uh, as they cooked uh, gore-streaked slabs of blubber uh, to oil and great big iron cauldrons. There's something like really appetizing about that. I know it's not supposed to be, but and I'm the vegetarian on the show, <laughs> but the idea of eating blubber cooked in oil cauldron sounds awesome to me. <laughs> well, it's it's certainly a, a grim uh, scene to imagine. I, I always find these illustrations of whale processing very Oh yeah. Uh you know intriguing but but grotesque. Uh, I when I was a kid in Newfoundland, Canada, we got to Explore some abandoned whaling um, uh, stations yeah. up there, and it was it was pretty fascinating to just walk through these areas that are just completely desolated because there's there's no reason for people to to be there and remain there if they're right. not processing uh, large aquatic mammals. Yeah, it's fascinating. Uh, my experience growing up in New England is similar, although like th- those towns have survived and have since gone on to you know have different economies surrounding them. But you see like these old seaside towns that used to like uh, Gloucester, Massachusetts, I think of, mm-hmm. which I believe Gloucester is what. Uh, the setting for Moby Dick was based on. I want to say it might. Uh, listeners, please correct me if I'm wrong, but I, th- I think that's right. It's an interesting town to take a look at the whaling industry. So, if, if you're familiar with, of course, the whaling industry, one of the one of the issues, besides it being, you know, eventually uh, largely uh, removed from uh, from the sphere of human uh, influence, uh, they also reached the point where whalers had virtually uh, hunted many of their these whales to the brink of extinction. Uh, so when that happened around Svalbard, they left for other waters, and then uh, fur-wrapped hunters—they were pretty much the only ones there for a while. And then the world kind of forgot about Svalbard until the coal rush of the 20th century. And then you had settlements popping up across the islands, mining shafts uh, sinking down like roots into the permafrost. Now, and today, the coal industry still continues on Svalbard, uh, and uh, it still reshapes the environment to a certain degree. You have uh, you know underground tunnels that span for miles through the mountains of Longyearbyen. And uh, the, the mouths of abandoned mines pox the hillsides. And then you also have this situation where near active mines, you have fans of coal dust that drift through the air and you have black snow heaps, uh, uh, you know, along the roadsides uh, and also like tracking back to the communities that uh, that that uh, staff these mines. I find the whole coal mining history of Svalbard really interesting, especially mm-hmm. in light of uh, so we're recording this in the summer of 2017. There's a lot of talk about coal mining going on again here in the yeah. United States. Uh, whether we should do it, whether we should support the mining industry, whether we shouldn't support the mining industry. A lot of the stuff that I think Svalbard kind of went through already. Yeah. Again, maybe a canary in a coal mine for the rest of us. Um, so outside of the coal industry, as I mentioned before, there's this big science industry that's going on there now too. And there is a main research station for that that is called Nee Olsund. Uh, and there's a lot of strange symbols over the uh, phonetic lettering there. So I hope I'm getting that right. I, we looked it up ahead of time, but I, I'm, I'm not great with my Norwegian. So, uh, this place was formed in the mid sixties. It reminds me of, uh, when we did our episode on Akadem Gorodok, mm-hmm. uh, in the former Soviet Union. Now, Ni Olsund is actually a research station for scientists from 10 different nations, and they study environmental and earth sciences there. But it's actually owned by King Bay AS, which originally was a mining company, and now it provides infrastructure to this area. Uh, the aim is to keep the local human impact on the environment as low as possible using sustainable operations for research and monitoring. So that's kind of fascinating that this company that started off as a mining operation in the middle of these icy wastes mm-hmm. has evolved over the decades and said, okay, we no longer want to participate in that. What we're going to do now is shift our resources into building the sustainable infrastructure for science. Yeah, I should also throw in that uh, astronomy is another area yeah. of, of, uh, of interest in Svalbard. Uh, you know, as, as is generally is the case when you have, uh, you know, research areas that are far removed from human activity. Uh, they say the northern lights there are phenomenal. 
so there's a committee that operates as a forum for exchanging information. Uh, this is basically exchanging scientific information between all of these 10 nations that are uh, t- together there at this research station. Then there's another committee that basically delivers advice and tools to people who aren't on Svalbard but want to do research there. So this is something you're interested in. You're a scientist. Uh, go check it out. Actually, uh, kingsbay.no slash research is where I found this information. And all the contact information for people who want to go study there is available there. One other thing I want to add quickly, again, related possibly to climate change, there was a freak weather incident in Svalbard just recently in January of 2012. It had this unusually warm winter. And what actually started happening because of this unusually warm winter was that the permafrost started to melt in the winter. Subsequently, there was an avalanche. And then all of this Plus the rainfall that came when the, during the warmer season, instead of there being snowfall, all of it refrozen to ice instead of snow. So the terrain became very treacherous. It was like even more treacherous than it already was. Like imagine you're studying those glaciers that we're talking about that are moving 20 meters a day. And then all of a sudden everything's covered in like slick ice. Yeah. You know, it's just sounds like a nightmare. Now, even to the point that certain shrubs on the islands that reindeer eat froze over and the reindeer couldn't get to like the, the, the grub or the berries, I guess, that are on these shrubs that they use to survive. So they found dead reindeer all, all over the place that oh, had man. starved to death. So this was reportedly a once in a 500 year event. Although some of the scientists are concerned that climate change may bring more winters like this to Svalbard in the future. So again, you know, like we talk about climate change on the show occasionally. It comes up, you know, it's not always like a topic we're tackling. It's usually related to the topics like Svalbard that we're talking about here. But this seems like a perfect microcosm example of like people say, well, what's the, what's the harm in climate change? This is a very small example up in one of the, you know, northernmost parts of the world, but you can see how quickly it affects the ecosystem. Yeah, indeed. Yeah, this is definitely one of those, um, yeah, canary coal mine situations. Mm-hmm. Um, which reminds me, uh, coral being uh, another one. Uh, oh, last yeah. Last summer we talked about, about, about coral reefs and, mm-hmm. uh, uh, the loss of coral reefs. Uh, you know, oftentimes, uh, you see, we, I remember we, we were talking about the bleaching that occurs there. Yeah. Uh, generally just due to a, a very small increase in sea temperatures. Uh, so it doesn't take much to begin to to, to put uh, certain organisms out of balance, and then you can have this cascading effect. It's really in these remote, exotic places around the world where we're starting to see the impact first. Yeah. You know, or at least maybe we look around ourselves in our industrialized society and we, we don't necessarily realize the impact. In these places, you can see it because there aren't as many humans there. Of course, it's kind of ridiculous, right? When you, we look around ourselves in a drastically reshaped, um, environment. Yeah. And then we, and then to think, well, how can humans possibly change the environment? I mean, look at the, the testament to it. Look at the artificial mountains that we've built up into the sky. And right. The, it's, it's, uh, to me, it can feel a bit ridiculous. Yeah. Well, hey, again, I don't know if it's climate change or not, but it has been a hot summer. It's been unpleasant and it's so, it's been on my mind. And that's why you want to go to Svalbard. Absolutely. Now, uh, speaking of environmental issues here, uh, it's, it's worth noting that there are, there are some really uh, interesting environmental programs going on on Svalbard. One of them is uh, subterranean CO2 storage. So rising carbon dioxide levels in the atmosphere, these have worried climatologists for years. Svalbard, for all of its uh, delicate natural beauty, is home to Norway's uh, uh, only coal-burning plant, which supplies uh, local residents with most of their power. And these uh, processes, in turn, release carbon dioxide, which contributes to the Earth's greenhouse effect. Now, fortunately, Svalbard also boasts an excellent place to store the emissions. Uh, remember those mines that we were talking about earlier? Yeah. Well, roughly um, 3,280 feet or 1,000 meters below the city of Longyearbyen, uh, beneath the permafrost uh, and uh, the warren of mining tunnels, researchers have discovered an ideal storage site for carbon dioxide. Okay. So here, coal plants would be able to inject emissions into porous sandstone, um, ab- above which you have a, a thick layer of slate, which would act as a lid 
sealing it deep in the earth. Okay. And this measure is part of a broader university center in Svalbard mission to make the islands carbon neutral by 2025, I believe, is the, the estimate. Uh, in addition to carbon capture, the plan also calls for the increased use of biofuels and a switch from gas-powered cars and snowmobiles, primarily snowmobiles, to mm-hmm. hydrogen fuel-equipped uh, transportation. So there's actually another gas-related issue in and around Svalbard, especially related to carbon. Uh, there's reports that there's methane bubbling up from the bottom of the sea that surrounds the archipelago. Hmm. Uh, and it's caused some anxiety. People want to know why this is happening. There's plumes off the coast of Svalbard that have actually been present for thousands of years. And measurements show that what's going on is the methane gets trapped in these water columns. And they bubble up from ice-like crystal lattices down below called hydrates. But when these melt, it releases methane and that percolates up above and subsequently releases into the atmosphere. Now, here's where it gets really interesting, and it's related to that carbon storage you were talking about. The carbon that's in these gases seems to be consumed by microbes. So, again, microbial life in Svalbard really seems to be running the show. We're talking about algae, phytoplankton here, stuff like that, and it's using photosynthesis. But wait a second. If these microbes are eating parts of methane, how much carbon are they pulling out of the atmosphere in this process of photosynthesis? Well, researchers have found that around the deepest seeps of methane there, there actually wasn't an excess. And this indicated to them that the microbes below were active. But if you look at the shallow seeps around Svalbard, there was a measurable release. And some of this can be found drifting into the East Siberian Sea, where there are similar methane bubbles that have been found. Measurements, though, show that Svalbard's area isn't creating a net addition to the greenhouse effect. And this is fascinating, especially in relation to what you're talking about with the mining and storing the carbon, right? Why Why would that be? You would, you would assume they've been burning coal, they've been mining coal, all this stuff. What's going on here? Well, it seems that the organisms that I referred to earlier are actively sucking up the carbon dioxide. So while methane may be bubbling up, carbon dioxide is being absorbed twice as much. Now, this is good news for the greenhouse effect because methane actually traps 30 times more heat in our atmosphere than carbon dioxide. Luckily, a recent study, and by recent I mean like this was like two months ago, found that a 1,900 times, almost 2,000 times more carbon dioxide is being absorbed than methane is actually being emitted from these these seeps. So it's benefiting the atmosphere instead of contributing to the warming effect. And the same physical force that is uh, pushing the methane bubbles up is also providing this nutrient-rich cold water from the seabed up to the surface, which fertilizes the phytoplankton, and then they bloom and... And they soak up CO2. So this is really unique to this area, and it can't necessarily be counted on wherever there's methane seeps around the world. But, in fact, even in this area, it can change with the seasons and only be present during the constant sunlight of their Arctic summer. you got to remember, when they have summer, it's sunlight all day long. The sun doesn't go down. Mm -hmm. Likewise, they have a period of the year where it's just dark all the time. So they said, when it's dark all the time, this might be the opposite. We need to do further testing. So the idea is they're going to test these some more, and they're going to test other methane seeps around the world. But they're thinking that this phytoplankton might be a key to combating climate change. Huh. All right. We're going to take one more break. And when we come back, we will discuss the Doomsday Vault. All right, we're back. And, yeah, I, I feel like for a lot of people, when you say Svalbard, if they do recognize the name, they're going to think of the, the Doomsday Vault. Yeah, especially for, you know, those of us who do the kind of work that you and I do. Mm-hmm. I mean, how many times has the Seed Vault come up around here? Oh, yeah. I want to say, like, almost every show at How Stuff Works has done an episode on the yeah. Seed Vault, probably. Uh, it's one of these, like, uh, areas of fascination that that we all have, those of us that study kind of the the nonfiction weirdness of the world, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's a How Stuff Works article about it. There's a Stuff You Should Know episode based on it. And uh, and I, I feel like it's come up on this show in the past as well. But uh, I figured we'd roll through it, talk about it a little bit, yeah. talk about why it's interesting. I mean, it 
it's on one level, it makes for great photos because they have oh, the, yeah. the great uh, entrance to it. Uh, looks like a looks kind of like a part of a spaceship poking out of the snow. Totally, it, it always brings to mind uh, the spaceship in the thing for some reason. You know, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like this. I, I guess uh, I encourage those of you listening to go look at a photo if you haven't seen this. But it it looks like this long concrete hallway is pushing its way out of a mountain towards a beach, yeah. right? Like you can see the the ocean isn't that far from, I would say it's like maybe 50 meters mm-hmm. from the door to this vault. Uh, and it's very modern looking. The place was built in 2008 and it's got this interesting glass configurations embedded in the concrete and there's um like LED lights that you can see that look really beautiful at night. Yeah. Yeah, so it is, I should, we should back up and just say, I guess what exactly it is. It is a seed vault. And the idea of a seed vault is is nothing particularly new. I mean, as long as we've cultivated crops, as long as we've had um, uh, agriculture, you know, we have had farmers set aside seeds, focus on other seeds. And uh, and as and as the, the centuries and centuries have rolled by, uh, we've had various lessons in what happens when uh, you depend too much on one crop. Yeah. It, uh, if you have a monocrop culture and then that crop, uh, it, that crop is all the more susceptible to disease, uh, to some, to any kind of blight that might take it out. And therefore, it's it's great to have diversity, genetic diversity, um, crop uh species diversity and uh and where are we going to keep it all there's like two different levels here that you can sort of focus on one is hey we love potatoes if something happens to this potato we need alternate potato genetics to turn to which is exactly what's going on with bananas right now yeah so that's one level and then the other level is we just have like rich biodiversity anyway and there there are potential answers in that biodiversity that we don't even we don't even know we need yet. The questions haven't come up, or we're, we're not we're not matching them up correctly. Yeah. And therefore, we need to safeguard this this treasure, this 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 rich biodiversity. In this case, of uh, of plant life, of seeds, uh, often with a focus on 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 food crops. But we need to have that saved safe somewhere so we can we can seek it out when we need it. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the Svalbard Global Seed Vault is actually this massive facility. It's built into the side of a mountain, and the the idea is it's designed to keep the entire world's food supply safe in the face of climate change, but also other threats. Uh, really interesting example that came out of uh, I watched a a YouTube video that Veritasium did, where the host of Veritasium went to Svalbard and went inside the seed vault. It was fascinating, and I'll talk a little bit about that more. But they actually have already had to withdraw seeds from there mm-hmm. because in Syria, when Aleppo was bombed, they lost access to the seed vault that was there. So they needed to replenish it with what Syria had already sent to Svalbard. So this is – I mean this is real important stuff here. Yeah. Now you mentioned the, the various uh, cataclysms it's made to survive. I've also read that it is made to survive anything short – of a direct uh, nuclear strike. Yeah. And I, I and I think if you're if you're launching a nuclear missile uh, at the Svalbard um, Global Seed Vault, that's a that's kind of a dick move. Yeah, so. I can't, well, here's why I can't imagine that ever happening. Again, from that Veritasium video, mm-hmm. this fascinating uh example, the United States and North Korea, the seeds that they sent together to the Svalbard Seed Vault sit on the huh. same shelf. So they literally show in this video, I encourage you to go watch it, uh, the different boxes and the North Korean boxes are all handmade, uh, and, and, but they're just all right there next to each other. Like two nations that we think of as being quote enemies have their seeds in the same place to make sure that everybody can eat. That is the most comforting uh, news of U.S.-North Korean relations that I've heard in, in quite some time. Yeah, yeah, it's nice. We, maybe we need to uh, remind our global leaders of these seed boxes. Yeah, I mean, in a, in, a, in a way, like, that sums it up, right? I mean, like, this is the stuff we depend on. This is the stuff we come from. This is, uh, this is, these are our treasures as a, as a people, and this is what is, is more important. Yeah, absolutely. So actually, around the entire world, there are seeds from nearly 10,000 different crop varieties. And we're talking wheat, barley, chickpea, eggplant, whatever. But 
when you consider it, there's only actually 150 or so crops that make up what people mainly eat today. Mm-hmm. That's kind of fascinating. I hadn't really thought about that. Uh, you, you get your, like, uh, your, your blue apron shows up at home. This isn't a plug for one of our sponsors, but like I've been eating blue apron lately. Yeah, same here. You get a couple different seeds, you get your, you know, your veggies, whatever you're going to put your meal together with. You don't realize there's really only about 150 different combinations of these, of these particular vegetables that you can work with. Uh, and that doesn't count all the varieties though, okay? So there's 150 general crops. But then when you count all the varieties, then you're looking at 120,000 different varieties. And then when you take in uh, seed samples as a whole, what you're talking about, I've, I've seen estimates of 4.5 million. Yeah. 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 So the actual vault, it was built in 2008 and it is designed as a backup to a pre-existing loose network of other seed banks that exist around the world. Norway paid $9 million for the construction of this. It's a thousand square meters and it's got three separate secure underground storage chambers and they're kept at either negative 18 degrees Celsius or, you know, for comparison for those of us in the United States, zero degrees Fahrenheit. Uh, but it's surrounded by permafrost. They purposely built it in so the permafrost was all around it. And this naturally keeps the temperature down to negative 6 Celsius. So the idea here is that even if there's a power outage, it will naturally keep these seeds cool no matter what. Now, I'm glad that you brought up uh, the fact that there are other seed vaults that feed into Svalbard because it's important to note, even though the Svalbard tends to get the, mo- the most press, it's just one of the shining stars among various uh, gene banking efforts around the world. Yeah. Multiple organizations are, are, are working to preserve organisms of all forms against the dangers of extinction due to climate change, pollution, habitat loss, etc. Right. Like, there's actually a wonderful New York Times article that recently came out uh, titled Arcs of the Apocalypse by Malia Wolin. Okay. Um, I'll try to remember to include a link to that on the landing page for this episode at StuffToBlowYourMind.com because it's it discusses Svalbard a little bit, but it also discusses San Diego Zoo's Frozen Zoo, oh. uh, the National Ice Core Laboratory in Lakewood, Colorado, Smithsonian's National Zoo. They have some efforts to uh, – uh, to, this is this is pretty great. Uh, maintain the largest collection of frozen exotic animal milk. <laughs> uh, the Coral Restoration Foundation, the Florida Keys, the National Lab for Genetic Resources Preservation in Colorado. Uh, these are just a few. So, um, it, Svalbard again, it's kind of the superstar, but there are a lot of uh, scientists around the world that are saying, yes, there's our biodiversity is precious. Yeah, let's preserve what we can. Yeah, in fact, there's a 1,400 other gene banks around the world in a 100 different countries. And securing diverse crops like this is critical. Why? So that we have strong, healthy crops that supply the world with steady food going forward, right? Immediately, like, as I was doing the research for this, I have a little notebook where I write down ideas for potential stories, and I was like, ah, like, this is a great idea for a story, although somebody's probably already written this five times. You're in a future dystopia. The world's running out of food. There's no longer like a, a industrial transportation. Mm-hmm. You got to send a mission up to Svalbard to break into the vault and get those seeds out so you can feed the world. Yeah, I feel like Svalbard comes up in the novel The Wind Up Girl by um, author uh, Paolo Baclavuti. He, um, it, a tremendous book. It's kind of a post environmental disaster. Uh, science fiction uh, novel. Okay. Uh, really wonderful read, but I believe there's some mention of Svalbard because basically yeah. nobody can fly anywhere anymore because the uh, we've uh, we're, we're post oil at this point. Everyone's having to resort to clipper ships again. Okay. Uh, to uh, to navigate the world, and I believe Svalbard comes up because there's a lot of there's also this. It's like a post GMO. Uh, apocalypse kind of a scenario as well. Well, I mean, that sounds like, yeah, exactly right. So it sounds like uh, that author did their research, especially because you've got countries and research universities and other organizations that are all sending their prepackaged seeds up to this vault in these boxes that are stored on these shelves. And the thing is, is how long the seeds can stay there is varied, actually. Like it's, you know, we, we hear people talking about the seed vault all the time. It's easy to think like, oh, they just sit there forever and then they're fine. But actually, it, there's a completely uh, broad variety of how long they'll last in that cold. Some will last for up to 1,200 years. Others only last for 80 years. So this is something we need to keep maintaining as well. It doesn't just like go away, you know? Oh, yeah. Uh, and and – 
speaking of maintaining, uh, I know some of you may have caught uh, news of this earlier in the year. So I do want to mention that, yes, earlier this year, news came out that the vault experienced flooding due to excessive rainfall during what should have been, uh, you know, well bef- below freezing weather. Uh, the, the water that flooded in shorted out the electric pumps. They would have, you know, been used to, to prevent this. Yeah. But it's important to note the seeds stayed dry, uh, thanks in part to efforts uh, from firefighters and locals. Um, but still, it, it's a tr- it's a troubling development in the grander sense when you start uh, speaking of, uh, uh, you know, climate change and its effects on, yeah. on the natural world and everything we're trying to do. Uh, but it's important to note that the seed vault itself was fine. Yeah, and that is related to the freak weather incident from 2012 I was talking about, mm-hmm. too. So they're experiencing this, like, unprecedented warm flashes, apparently. Uh, now, a couple fun facts that I learned from that Veritasium video as well. So only the depositor can open the actual boxes that have the seeds in them. So the people at the seed vault who run it, they can't open those boxes. They don't even know what's inside them. They assume they're seeds, but could be something else. Who knows? Like maybe Jimmy Hoffa's in one of these boxes and it got sent to the Svalbard seed vault. You don't know. <laughs> the world uh, leader clone. Um, <laughs> yeah, maybe that's what's there. I should mention that there is an international treaty, the International Treaty on Plant Genetic Resources for Food and Agriculture, and that's what uh, governs uh, access. Right. Uh, and so they have a couple of rules. They don't allow drugs to be stored there. So any – so for instance, like marijuana seeds uh, are not allowed to be stored there uh, or any genetically modified seeds either. They have to be – uh, seeds from one of the 25 crops that are considered to be the most important for global food security. So we're talking about stuff like rice, maize, potato, bananas, plantains, etc. And they've actually, this was a funny bit in the video too, they receive letters from men who want to put their genetic material Ugh. in there. So they're like, oh, is this a place where I can just store me? So for, you know, for future uh, needs, if I ever need to access my DNA. I cannot... I, that is ridiculous because there are places that do like if that's your thing there yeah. there there are services there are establishments that that make that their their business why would you contact Svalbard <laughs> maybe you're very mismistaken I don't know it's like know. saying hey I've got some ice cream can you store it there I heard right. I heard you have a place that is cold <laughs> and I don't know where else in the world I might find such a place we should write them a letter asking if we can put our ice cream there. <laughs> But yeah, it seems odd to me as well. Apparently, they just don't even bother responding to these requests, oh, which well, I no, think is probably the right move. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's like when you get like a nasty Facebook comment, they just leave it alone. <laughs> don't 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 engage. Yeah. So that's the seed vault. We've pretty much hit, uh, you know, most of our most of our tourist spots, the things I'd want to <laughs> hit when I go to uh, Svalbard. The seed vault. I want to see some glaciers. Uh, climb around in some CO2 tanks. I might go uh, go for a swim in some methane uh, seeps. You know, <laughs> I think that would probably kill me. Oh, man, they should really do a death metal music fest there. Part of this whole, what do you say, the dark tourism? Yeah. 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 Can't you imagine it with, like, people are moshing and polar bears are picking off people on the outside? It sounds like a Metalocalypse episode, <laughs> yeah. Um, there is a scene in Fortitude which, uh, again, you know me, caught my interest uh, it's like the first or second episode, the, one of the characters goes down to like, there's like a small bar that's basically like the only bar in the town, right? Uh-huh. And there's like a death metal band playing in this <laughs> tiny bar and there's like 15 people all like rocking out to this death metal band. Is it band. anyone we would know? It's not like Trypticon or anybody, is it? It's not, but it's a real band. Huh. I went and looked up online. I forget what their name is, but yeah, they were like, yes, we are the band that's in that episode from Fortitude. Now, did it, I, Side tangent, did it feel believable that this band was playing in a bar? Yeesh. Uh, well, my first thought was like, man, it must have been expensive to fly this band from wherever they were to mm-hmm. Svalbard and bring all their equipment with them. But I'm assuming in the context of the show, these are a bunch of Svalbardians that just play death metal there every night. I don't uh-huh. know. <laughs> well, hopefully it's more believable than uh, it was True Detective Season 2. Oh. Where there's, a, there's this recurring bar scene yep. where Vince Vaughn's character is hanging out. And there's a, a, a very – I don't recall her name, but there's a very talented musician playing there. Yeah. She's playing the sad saddest songs in the world and I'm just I'm torn out of the the viewing experience because I'm like who would who books this artist to play here this oh, is man that season of TV is something <laughs> else but yeah that I saw that as well and it oh, 
the those scenes kept yanking me out. It felt very much like um they were trying to do what David Lynch does actually. Uh, oh yeah, the Nine Inch Nails thing, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, uh, in the new season of Twin Peaks, every episode has a performance by a band uh in it. Usually it's it's right at the end credits. Uh, and, uh, this felt very much like that, or like in Mulholland Drive, David Lynch, you know, uh, inserts music in certain places uh-huh. where you're watching performances. And that felt like it was trying so hard to do that in True Detective, but it was just, oh, it was painful. But Fortitude, not painful. You're giving it a, a strong recommendation? Yeah, I loved it. The first season is better than the second season, but they're both fun. Uh, and yeah, I, I can't recommend it enough, especially like if you are a, a listener of our show and you've listened to multiple episodes, I think you'd find it delightful because they, they tap into all of these things that we've covered over the years. Cool. Well, we'd love to hear from Fortitude fans that have some thoughts on the Svalbard issues here. And if you have been to Svalbard as a working professional, as a tourist, as a polar bear, then let us know because we would love to hear your account. Yeah, definitely. I'm I'm planning my Svalbard vacation right now. So get, please let me know if you've been there and uh, what I need to prepare for. And, you know, maybe in the next five years or so, I'll finally make it up there. All right. Well, in the meantime, hey, if you want more Stuff to Blow Your Mind, go to StuffToBlowYourMind.com. That is our mothership. That's where you'll find all of our oh, podcast episodes. You'll find some videos. You'll find blog posts, as well as links out to our various social media accounts, such as Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, Instagram, etc. And as far as Facebook goes, we did, we, we're currently experimenting with a Facebook group there. Yeah. So if you've been to our Facebook page and you want, like, I don't know, you want more involved conversation, uh, you want to share something with us, uh, that's one avenue to do that. Yeah, you just go to the discussion group and you ask to join and one of us or the other moderators will let you in and you can participate in the conversations going on there. It's like a message board. It's like we're back yeah. to the 90s of uh, Internet era. But I like it. It's it's a, 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 a more tight-knit community on Facebook than our our huge audience that's subscribed there right now. Yeah, it's an experiment. We're going to see what happens with it. And if it if it if it's a module attached to the mothership, if you will. And if it if it works, we'll keep it. If not, we'll jettison it into the into the culture the unforgiving uh, black hearted space <laughs> and if you want to write us the old fashioned way you just want to get in touch with us directly you can write to Robert, Joe and myself at blowthemind at howstuffworks.com for more on this and thousands of other topics visit howstuffworks.com <laughs> 